Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And welcome back. It's been a couple weeks since uh, since we've uh, last interacted, but the, the show must go on. Apologize for that. You know, uh, wedding of my son and then uh, Pesach, etc. And, you know, just uh, things happen. So, but we are back this week. And as the proverbial circus involving politics, what a week it's been, particularly for the show. Uh, I'm talking about the political show. And if you look at politics as entertainment, look no further than what has transpired this week. Not necessarily on substance. And there's so much substance going on of real, real crisis, debt ceiling, etc. going on in the country. Uh, this migrant crisis that's been going on. Um, Conflict in Israel, which is scary, as always, and continues to be. And there is uh, a presidential race, of course, taking shape for 2024. And as we embrace all that and think about all that, we are also <laughs> have to follow, well, the, the entertainment side. And the entertainment side includes, well, what's happened this week, particularly, is the arrest indictment of one George Santos, which is just a remarkable story of politics in general and how that transpired and how that has come to be, given the fact that the indictment itself really shows a incredible history of outright grift on his part. Of course, he has the chance to defend himself, but it's kind of unclear at this point you know, even who or what George Santos is and does, but as a former Senator Al D'Amato put it yesterday, and it was uh, ironic that uh, it was the Long Island old sage, wise guy, a wise man of politics, basically put it so succinctly, not much analysis really in there, but just the very straight up, Essentially, George Santos is a two-bit thief. And that seems to be the case if you read what happened. If you read the indictment, if you read the fact that he held a fundraiser, money was supposed to go into a super PAC and essentially put it into his own pocket. There was no super PAC involved. Claiming unemployment benefits when he was actually employed by a company in Florida. And on and on and on. And this is just something that keeps going on. I would have to say, and, you know, of course, the circumstances involving George Santos and his election and how that came to be is something we have explored in previous episodes, really not worth it go in right now. I guess the politics of it for the Republicans, and you got to wonder the difference between the beltway mentality of the congressional leadership and the local mentality of New York Republicans who all seem to have won, every single one, particularly those in Nassau County, I guess with the exception of you know maybe some upstate, like Elise Stefanik, who was not, who's one of the few New York colleagues of Santos who is not calling on him to actually resign. They all understand what, particularly in a suburban setting, what an albatross he will be next year, even if he is not on the ballot, even if he is not running, I believe the specter of George Santos being associated with the Republican Party will have a deleterious effect on many of his colleagues. I'm sure that Nick Lalota and Anthony D'Esposito 
and Michael Lawler and Nicole Nalitakis, they all see that. They all understand that. They all see that there is a problem having this guy around on a continual basis and everybody talking about him and talking about him to the exclusion of other things. And there was just the Santos show. And clearly the Nassau County Republican Party is furious with Santos, furious with the fact that he has to be there. And he is in some ways, in some people's minds, the poster child for Republican when, in fact, it's kind of unclear that or it seems I'm sorry, it seems pretty clear at this point that the reason that George Santos got into office was essentially to take people's money and live off their largesse. Uh, not necessarily something wrong if you want to do that outside of politics, but once you start signing federal papers and government papers and government instruments and disclosure forms that are done under penalty of perjury, if you're a serial liar, it's a little bit difficult, difficult at best, and we'll leave, use that word generously, it's difficult to kind of get away with it. Eventually, it probably will catch up with you. So what is it that they see? Well, Kevin McCarthy, I'm sure, sees he's got a very slim majority. He's got to pass a debt ceiling deal, of which he got George Santos's vote. And he's got other legislation that he has to go ahead. And a special election, of course, is extremely uncertain in this environment. So he probably looks at the score and looks at the numbers and says, oh, this is an unwinnable election in a potential special election. On the other hand, those Republicans on the ground, they know the skill and the strength of the Nassau County Republican Party, Chairman Joe Cairo and others. And the fact is that the Republican Party probably has in Nassau County has not lost a special election, I believe, since Todd Kaminsky won the election to replace Dean Skelos way back in, oh, I don't know, what was that, 2016? Now, the anomaly of that one was that that special election was held on presidential primary day. It juiced, It was an unusually high turnout for Democrats in that particularly in that particular election, which may have contributed to Kaminsky's win by 800 votes. I believe since then, since 2016, special elections have in Nassau County, despite a enrollment majority for Democrats, special elections have largely gone Republicans' way. They know how to win. They know how to do it. But perhaps the wise people of DC, the pundits, pollsters who generally do not always have the local knowledge, they don't see it. So if you're listening out there, get rid of George Santos now, get rid of the problem, rip the Band-Aid off, have a special election. The Republicans have a better chance of winning that than they do in 2024, even with a new candidate. But who's listening? And... This is a this is an issue that's probably just going to continue to entertain us in in a very sad way because when it comes down to it, there are seven hundred eighty thousand people who live in the third congressional district of New York who are, by all accounts, devoid of real representation. This is a guy that nobody will work with on a local level, on a federal level. Nobody in Congress is working with him. Nobody will co-sponsor his bills. He has no chance of ever getting getting anything passed. He can't really deliver on constituent services because others won't work with him. And it's unfortunate that we have that you have somebody occupying the office who clearly, clearly so unfit, having nothing even irrespective of the fact that he was arrested and arraigned yesterday. That's not even the point. The point is that he is 
a serial fabricator of his own resume. So if you enjoyed that show, you probably would have enjoyed the CNN town hall with former President Donald Trump last night held in New Hampshire. And I can't understand. Well, look, television is about the ratings and it's about entertainment. And that is it. I can't understand why CNN. No, I I mean, I understand why CNN put it on. And the truth is, as an observer, I'm happy to have watched it. I'm happy to have to have seen it. And I'm not sure that anybody is more informed or less informed at this point of President Trump and what his opinions are on anything. I guess the only thing that was a little bit struck out at me was his Ukraine-Russia answer when he couldn't say whether he'd rather Ukraine or Russia win the war. Now, I understand the argument on some in the Republican Party, and they say, well, we should not be giving so much aid and money to Ukraine, and that's a drain on our finances, and that's not the role of the United States to take sides. But to say that we don't really have a favorite in this war, given the fact that Russia is an avowed adversary and Ukraine is a, well, not a NATO member, but certainly a seen as a Western ally, to not make a judgment between Putin and Zelensky, um, I don't know. That to me is newsworthy. I mean, it's a little bit surprising. It's a little bit more out there than Ron DeSantis's misstep on the territorial dispute. That's just kind of the even-handedness. And of course, you know, Trump said a comment that nobody can possibly disagree with. I just want the death to stop. I want the killing to stop. Well, of course, everybody wants that. Everybody wants peace. Don't we all want peace? Don't we wish that that would be happened? But peace at what cost is the big question. So that might be the only thing that I found interesting, surprising. I mean, it's not surprising, of course, when Trump um, is afraid or reluctant. I think that's the better word, reluctant. I don't think Trump is actually afraid of pretty much anything. Uh, And I think that's a strength of his. Uh, Reluctant to criticize Putin in any way, shape, or form. And I guess that that even-handedness, in most cases, can you imagine an American president saying, well... You know, Russia, they're they're okay. Um, that's never been since 1945, probably, not, sorry, since 1917. Um, that's probably been the American foreign policy. And to have that equivalence is a real, real uh, surprise. Caitlin Collins was certainly totally overmatched, as are most interviewers of Donald Trump. There's just no question about it. I don't, it's funny that they go in there thinking that they are going to match up to him. They just, he is a, has a style. He has a willingness to talk past you and do it in a way that makes you seem ineffective and the weaker party and it's off-putting. It's an incredible skill and incredible talent, his ability to interview, and very few have been able to challenge him in any way, shape, or form. I guess Jonathan Swan would be the one who would be closest in a way, but Caitlin Collins seemed to be totally overmatched, and she tried. She tried to fact-check. She tried to go ahead and do it. Now, I'm not saying this. I'm saying this was a interesting attempt, attempt by CNN to actually be newsworthy because there really wasn't much newsworthy in this unless your point is, well, we need to fact-check him. We need to – it's not necessary to fact-check him. The, the I think the failure – 
from my from a political point of view. And this is not the question. Donald Trump is who he is. If you're if you want that, then you got that and you're happy with that and you're pleased with that and you're happy that he's running. I don't know that that is going to allow him to reach beyond to the uh, reach beyond the base to reach to the voters that he did not get last time around. And you know the money quote from Trump of course is once again that he kind of won the election. He got 12 million more votes in 2000 than he got in two, 2020 than he got in 2016. Of course, Donald Trump, uh, sorry, Joe Biden got more votes than that. Yes, Trump got 75 million votes, which was a record, but Joe Biden got 81 million. Now, he doesn't believe that Joe Biden got 81 million. And I'm not, if you don't believe that and you're listening, I'm not sure what to tell you. This is not going to be a program that's going to go ahead and uh, disabuse you of that. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to do that whatsoever. I mean, Trump was singularly unapologetic about anything, unapologetic about January 6th, pulled out his tweets, says he was peaceful, said everything, uh, called, it doesn't really matter. I'm not, uh, January 6th, I think was a travesty and we're going to, we're going to leave it at that. I think the point, my point getting to this politically is that it's surprising that he didn't take time to criticize Joe Biden. If you're looking at yourself as the punitive Republican nominee for president, you're going to be the one taking the fight in 2024 for the Republican Party. You didn't go ahead and do the job of criticizing Joe Biden. Now, you might say, if you're Trump, it's just about me personality-wise, and it's just about my force of personality. You showed the force of your personality there. Plus the fact, of course, CNN clearly stacked the I mean, and this is who they said. It was Republican voters and Republican-leaning independents. So most of the people in the audience were Trump supporters, and Trump feeds off that, and he loves the applause, and he got the applause, and Caitlin Collins certainly wasn't ready to deal, or at least she didn't seem ready to deal with the multiple applause lines. Maybe she thought that people were actually going to cheer him when she fact-checked him or when she interrupted him. That was never going to happen. I don't think a lot of people there, either they were supporters or they enjoy the spectacle, and it certainly was a spectacle. And it's just, he is entertaining. He is incredibly entertaining. It's fun to watch him. It's so much more fun to watch him in these interviews than it is to watch anyone else in politics. It's that simple. And that's really what it comes down to. This is fun. People enjoy this. People like it. People like him. They like listening to the fact that he challenges everything and he challenges conventions and they challenge and you know they look at him as a truth teller in a way because he's willing to say things that are so provocative and so unusual and in some cases probably stretching the truth. And people find that entertaining and enjoyable. Unfortunately, to some degree for a lot of people, if you're not part of that base and you're beyond the entertainment and you want a little bit more substance and politics and contrast. The only contrast that you're really getting is a guy who thinks that January 6th was a great day. One of the things that he said, doesn't necessarily believe that Ukraine should win the war or would be good for Ukraine to win the war. That's a different story, but it would be good for Ukraine to win the war. And, you know, a guy who just really, I mean, he couldn't even really say whether he he would restrict abortion. So it was kind of weird in a way that he was supportive of, of course, congratulating himself about Roe v. Wade, but it, the, that answer was all over the place in classic Trump fashion. But if you are somewhere a little more in the middle of the road, 
you didn't get anything out of last night. In fact, you probably might have been turned off a little bit. And of course, speaking in, I would say, on inappropriate, uh, misogynistic terms about the woman who successfully sued you in court, um, that's... Well, I, I don't know that you're going to win over a lot of women with that. I know he said his poll numbers went up, but it, to me, it's just I, I can't even understand the lack of defense in that one. I mean, they didn't put in on and put on any defense. His deposition was disaster. What I what what I wrote because he just seems so aloof and uninterested and dismissive. I don't think that when somebody accuses you of something, you should at least look like you're taking it seriously. Um, but his aggressive tone has always worked for him, and his attack tone has always worked for him, and it did work for him last night. There was no question about it that being aggressive in this case, being on the offensive constantly and not being defensive at all, which he never is, he's always offensive, it works for him and continues to work for him in these types of settings. Whether it will work for all the voters and allow him to expand beyond his base is kind of unclear. I don't know if I'm the got person who voted for him in 2016 and didn't vote for him in 2020. The only reason I'm going to vote for him in 2024, if he's on the ballot, is because I think Joe Biden is doing such a terrible job and the Democrats are ruining the country. That's what you got to say, in my opinion. Well, we're going to leave it that point right there. So let's talk about the way that really that is actually happening, that things are going terribly awry in Joe Biden's America, and I speak specifically of the migrant crisis, uh, this is just out of control right now. The border is going to open up even more. The thousands and thousands of migrants are coming across unchecked. And yes, I feel for them, and I want people to have a better life and have the ability to come to the United States of America, and that should be a wonderful thing, but they cannot be an entirely lawless situation. It continues and continues and goes on and on. And you know, New York is feeling the pain in a very, very profound and significant way. There's no question right now that New York is being overwhelmed with migrants coming from the border. 60,000, I think, over the last couple months, totally overwhelming the New York City shelter system. And New York City has, of course, two strikes against it when it comes to, or let's say, I don't know, strikes against it. Some might say it's the other way. But New York City specifically has a right to shelter. That's number one, that everybody by law has to get a roof over their head. And number two, it's a sanctuary city. So now New York might complain and you know now they're finally saying, well, we can't fund this. We can't keep this up. But you know, New York City in specifically um, has now kind of reached that point where they can't afford this type of largesse towards people crossing the border and undocumented crossing the border illegally. I mean, it's illegal because they came across illegally. They didn't come in a legal path. Yes, you can. So it's not a question of why or what, et cetera. It's just a fact of can we afford to house and feed and take care of all these people, men, women, and children alike, and do that in a fair way? And the answer really is no. I think the Democrats and even progressives and even liberals realize at this point that it is no. Um, you know, Mayor Adams is has pointed to a crisis, and there is a crisis going on, so much so that he now wants to send migrants to counties that are not sanctuary cities. And they do not want... Um, they do not want migrants coming and filling the hotels and taking over all these places... Um, 
for for a number of reasons, whether it's public safety, public hygiene, whatever whatever it is, shouldn't that be the right of local authorities to determine their local priorities? Absolutely. I mean, how can you say it's not? Just because New York City has very permissive and progressive laws, which is their right as a municipality to do so, that does not mean that surrounding counties and surrounding municipalities have to feel the same way. Isn't that what local control is all about? And you know, to go ahead and send people to Orange and Rockland counties uh, without any consultation with local officials, to go ahead and say, you must house these people, or we're going to house these people there, even if we're going to pay for it, that is a choice that local officials should be able to make. And immediately, that does not make you a racist. That does not make you a racist just because you don't want to have a crisis of other people's making foisted upon you. And that is seems to be the way that things are going in uh, New York right now. And of course, I'm sure that New York is saying, well, we didn't want these. We didn't want all these migrants coming from Texas to begin with or from the southern border. Well, New York is a sanctuary city. And if you decide that you are going to be this beacon mega magnet for migrants, that's probably what you're going to get. Eventually, they're going to get to you because if everybody thinks they're going to get a roof over their head and they're going to be fed and they're going to get internet access and recreation activities, et cetera, then they're going to come here for a couple of years for months or days and months and then years, and they're going to go ahead and do that. And yes, New York City cannot afford it. Actually, nobody can afford it. Really, that's what it comes down to is that people are coming here because they think, I don't know. I mean, they're coming here because they're escaping uh, really, I, in many cases, it's not political persecution, it's economic distress, and economic distress is is difficult. But at the same time, are we willing to bankrupt our public budgets for people who are coming from Central America? While I feel for them, while I want them to have the benefits of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness – that is something that needs to be done according to the law and should be done according to the law. And if New York City decides as a municipality that they want to house and feed these people, and I mean, I don't mean these people, I mean people who are in coming from and seeking asylum, then and seeking a better life, then that is their choice. But that's not a choice that should be foisted upon neighboring communities that don't have the same resources, that don't have the same ability to cope with these types of numbers. And that is essentially what's happening. That does not make people immediately a racist in order for doing that. And the rhetoric just needs to, well, it just needs to calm down. So what is the takeaway? What, what, what takeaway do we have from this is that Donald Trump is just a unique, unique political personality. We've never seen anybody like that. We've never seen anybody with this ability. Literally the day after being uh, found libel not guilty, but found libel of sexual assault towards a woman literally the day after goes on national TV with a woman reporter and just steamrolls her and uh, in a way on every single question. I mean, there's no other way to say that. They And if the point is that CNN wants to make sure, you know, like for ratings purposes, that Donald Trump will be the 2024 Republican nominee, they did a great job in doing that. And the unfettered hour plus special that you've done that is, um, well, 
you know, that's that's essentially has what happened. So hang on to your seats, hang on to your hats. This is what is coming in 2024 campaign, and we're seeing it already. Uh, we're seeing this uh, circus, and you know, and the other thing I think, of course, is that how will Joe Biden over the <coughs> this month um, deal with this issue of the debt ceiling and the debt crisis? And now that Republicans actually put something forward, willing to negotiate, there's only a couple of days left to make that happen. Will he be able to withstand this brinksmanship that is going on and not and make sure that the United States, that the full faith and credit of the United States continues, continues to be that uh, the gold standard of or the standard, the, uh, the gold standard is a different thing, but the standard for financial stability that it always has been. So that's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Nile Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week. 